Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Wesley Hill. Uh, Wesley Hill is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity School for Ministry in Pennsylvania. He is author of Paul and the Trinity, Persons, Relations, and the Pauline Letters, Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian, and Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. The book we have today is called The Lord's Prayer, A Guide to Praying to Our Father. It's in the same series that included a podcast we did a couple weeks ago with Peter Lightheart called The Ten Commandments. And it, this, this one here uh, does the same kind of close reading, explication, explanation of, again, one of the foundational uh, statements in, in, in Christianity. Let's jump right in. Thank you for joining us, Professor Hill. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here and talking with you. Well, we'll begin with the context. Uh, you open by saying that when Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, instructs the people in how to pray, there was nothing unusual in that act. It was quite common for a preacher to say, here's how it's done, everybody. That's right. And you know, we have a, we have a passage in Luke where uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, you know, John the Baptist taught his followers how to pray. Now you're a, a wandering rabbi like he was. Can you teach us to pray? So that that sort of template is not new, um, nor I think is the basic content of the prayer. Um, uh, you know, many people have remarked that Jews could pray the Lord's Prayer uh, with no problem. Uh, you know, this, the, these petitions are sort of rooted already in the Old Testament. Um, but I think what is new about it is that it's Jesus who's passing it on. Jesus is inviting his followers to share in the intimate term of address that he uses for God, a father, which is there in the Old Testament, although it's not prominent in the way that it is in the ministry of Jesus. So I think what's especially striking is that uh, the prayer, uh, in the way he passes it on, he's directing attention to himself and to the new thing that he's now doing in Israel and and for uh, God's people. You say, in fact, that the the style of his prayer is quite different. Uh, What would have been surprising to the crowd listening to Jesus that day was the way Jesus spoke about prayer. He rejected the ostentatious style of prayer with which his listeners would have been familiar. Instead, he emphasized how uncomplicated prayer should be. And this was was a, a real break from traditional, ordinary usage. It's interesting um, the way that Matthew's gospel introduces it in the context of Matthew chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, right before he 
gives the words of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words, which I think suggests that Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with sort of theatrical prayers, <laughs> the, the prayers of the pagan world that would have been aimed to cajole the gods or somehow twist their arms. And, and by contrast with all of that, Jesus' prayer is very simple. It's very straightforward. It, it, it assumes that God is already favorably disposed toward you. You don't have to try to bargain with God to get, to get him to be on your side or something. So in that way, I think it, it would have stood out uh, certainly in contrast to the prayers of, of the Gentiles that he's uh, remarking on there. And, uh, you know, I, I try to point out in the book that there's, uh, I think, comfort for contemporary Christians in that, you know, that the epistles spell out that we have access to God in a way that is uh, stunning and striking. We have the boldness uh, to call God Father. Um, and that comes from this this sort of confidence that we are now God's children through the work of Christ. You know, we've been, we've been given this new status as adopted sons and daughters. Um, so all of that to say, I, I do, I do think there's a kind of wonderful simplicity about the prayer, uh, that flows from the, the relationship with God that Jesus is trying to, to model and inculcate. And, and the very beginning the, our father, you, pull out of that the implication that we may have, as you put it, a childlike confidence that he will hear. Right, right. That's right. Um, you know, the, the, uh, one of the really striking things to me about the way the New Testament talks about prayer is it, it, it uses this Aramaic word, Abba, which, um, you know, most, most readers of Scripture have thought the reason that gets transliterated into Aramaic in the Greek New Testament is because it was a word that, that the earliest uh, followers of Jesus remembered that he had used. You know, it was striking. He 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 called God his his Abba, his Father, and um, I think what that gives to believers is is a kind of holy confidence. Uh, I, I I quote Rowan Williams, who uses the the British word cheek. We have the cheek, the nerve to call God Father because of this this work of Jesus for us. And and late, later on, you make the point that in in the liturgy, we, be, we we introduce it with the, we dare to say. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Which, again, I think picks up those passages in the epistles, which talk about us having this new, unprecedented access to God. Uh, we now have the boldness and the confidence that comes from uh, being children. Now, you, you, in, in terms of the address to the Father, and, and you you repeat how Jesus constantly refers to the Father. You mentioned something that I thought was striking and I, I actually hadn't thought about before being fairly new to the faith. God is portrayed in the Old Testament as Father only 15 total times. Mm, mm. Why? That's right. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, they're sort of they're prominent times, but they're, they're few and far between, you might say. And it's, it's really interesting when you read the story of the Exodus, um, you know, God refers to the people of Israel who are enslaved in Egypt as his son. And he tells Moses, you know, go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my son go, that he may worship me. And when Pharaoh refuses to do that, of course, his, his own firstborn son is, is taken, uh, just, just as he had robbed God of God's firstborn son, in a sense. So that, that, that concept is definitely there in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, God as Father. But it's nothing like 
it, it appears with nothing like the frequency that we see in the Gospels. Jesus knows God as Father first and foremost. Uh, that's his primary way of identifying uh, God. And, you know, what I argue in the book is that ultimately the Church came to recognize in the doctrine of the Trinity that Jesus has always been Son and God has always been Father. Uh, this is an eternal relationship that the Father and Son enjoy through this eternal uh, begetting, this eternal generation of the Son. The, the, this insistent address to the Father is one of the things that so appalled the Jewish leadership? I, I, th- I think it was the way that Jesus spoke about God as Father, the way he, he implied that he had a unique relationship to God. He is, he is the one who mediates knowledge of the Father. So it, it, I don't think it was the Father term alone. It was, it was all that Jesus baked into that term, if you like, all, all, the, all the theology that he put in, into it. The phrase, this opening phrase, and you, you actually go through phrase by phrase through the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. You, you call that, that you know, one, one could think that way up in heaven that's so distant, but you actually call it an expression of, quote, intimacy. Why so? It, it's intimate insofar as, um, you know, the, the, the closest possible um, relation we can, we can imagine is the relationship between the Eternal Father and the Eternal Son in the Holy Trinity, uh, you know, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I think we see that beautifully in the fourth gospel, uh, where Jesus, on the night of his arrest, prays this long, you know, intimate prayer to the Father, the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus. Um, and the fact that we are now um, beckoned, summoned to call God Father as Jesus does, um, sort of, sort of following his lead, so to speak. I mean, that that is strikingly. Uh, uh, intimate insofar as what it's doing is we're being ushered into the relations, the eternal relations of the Trinity itself. Um, I think that's what prayer is. We, we, we uh, take God's name on our lips. We call him Father because of Jesus, through Jesus, uh, in the energy and the power and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Um, so I really do think in, in many ways the Lord's Prayer leads us right to the heart of the Christian faith, right to the heart of the Godhead. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, it begins with a possessive pronoun. Not, That's right. oh, That's right. Father in heaven, That's but right. our Father in heaven. You know, and I didn't, I didn't explore this as much as I might have in the book, but a lot of writers over the centuries have, have thought it's very important that it doesn't say my Father. It says our Father. In other words, we don't, we don't pray this in isolation. We pray this with the church. You know, we pray this with our fellow believers. And um, you know, there, there's so much you could say about each word of this prayer. My book could have easily been five times as long. Uh, but, but that was a point I, I didn't get to underscore enough, I think. Well, one, one thing I'll, I'll tell our listeners, this series of books, they're small. They're, I mean, th- this book is, is only 100 pages. It's a nice, small, handy—it's a primer, right, of, of uh, the—actually, uh, we do go into some individual words. Uh, here in in the prayer. I mean, for, for example, heaven. One thing you note is that Luke's version doesn't mention heaven. Matthew's does. What, is there any reason Luke doesn't? You know, that's that's a great question. Scholars debate whether Luke would have had Matthew's gospel in front of him, and if he did, why he might have chosen to omit that phrase. Um, I, I suggested in the book that perhaps one thing that Matthew is doing uh, by including that phrase 
it's stressing that God is not a father in the earthly physical sense. You know, we believe that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body in that, in that sense. Um, and so when we talk about the fatherhood of God, we're, we're talking about something that's analogous to human fatherhood, but is not the same. Um, and so God is not our father on earth. He's our father in heaven. And I, I just think that that may be part of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The next phrase, hallowed be your name. And you really emphasize the, the heavy stress on, on, on the name itself must be yeah. hallowed. And you, you go into the, the Jewish name for, for God. Why is that significant? Well, I think it's, you know, what the, the, the remarkable thing about the God of Israel is that he has a proper name. <laughs> uh, one, one, of the, one of the people who, uh, um, you know, emphasizes this in a wonderful way is the Jewish theologian Michael Vishagrad, who, uh, you know, talks about God, God actually has an address, number one temple way, you know. The God of Israel is, is knowable in that sense. Um, he gives himself to be known. Um, so God, interestingly, the word God is more of a title. But um, he does have a proper name, which Jews, of course, would not pronounce. They would say Adonai or Hashem. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, Christians will, will sometimes uh, trans, transliterate it as, as Yahweh. But um, I, I prefer not to say it out of reverence for the, for the Jewish tradition. And, in fact, following the precedent of the New Testament, um, when the New Testament quotes uh, verses from the old in which that proper name appears, uh, they will substitute uh, the New Testament writers will substitute the reverential word Lord out of out of respect, I think, uh, not not pronouncing the divine name. Um, but, yeah, in the book, you know, I talk about how significant it is that that uh, not only does God have this name, but uh, as St. Paul says in Philippians, he, he gives this name to the risen Christ, which I think suggests the Trinitarian mystery. Right. That that in some unfathomable way. Uh, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are, are one God, um, sharing one divine name. Um, you know, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it says when Jesus is, is, is commissioning his followers to go out and proclaim the Gospel, and he says, uh, you know, you're to, you're to teach and to disciple and to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, so they, they all share this, this, this name. And um, you know, I think when we pray the prayer, we're, we're asking for that name to be held up, to be honored, to be esteemed, uh, to be set apart and reverent. This is all condensed into the verb, in, into the verb hallowed. I think right? so. Hallowed think so. be. That's right. Right. That's right. Right. So, okay. Uh, we, we move forward uh, into your kingdom come. And you talk about that this is not a first arrival. You speak of it as a return. Yes. That's right. Uh, it's, it's, it's talking about God's activity of reigning, you know, ruling as king. And so what Jesus is teaching us to pray is that that reign might become more and more manifest. Um, it got God assuming his kingship or asserting his kingship more in the world, um, which leads right into the next petition as well. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reason we pray that is because we recognize God's will is not currently being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we, we want to see it done more and more and more. We want to see um, glimpses of God's kingly reign, which is a benevolent reign. Um, God is not a tyrant. He's not ruling at our expense. It's a benevolent reign. And we want to see more and more um, signs of that. And, of course, we believe one day it will, it will appear in all of its fullness um, at the second, second coming. You lay out that that condition of paradox. You say the mysterious 
already, but not yet, nature of God's reign. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's striking. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus shows up, you know, in Galilee, he's preaching, and he says, uh, repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. It's already here. But then he turns right around and teaches his followers to pray, let your kingdom come more, which I think means that there's a mysterious sense in which it is really here now, and yet it's also not yet here in all of its fullness. Um, and, you know, sometimes uh, preachers will use the analogy of, of D-Day. You know, once, once D-Day happened, it became clear that the Allies were going to win the war, World War II, but it wasn't until VE Day that they actually secured Europe and, and you know, uh, made public the victory that everyone knew was coming. Um, so perhaps that's a that's an analogy for for how we see God's kingship coming. It it really has arrived. Uh, the beachhead has been secured, uh, but we don't see the final victory declared until the end. You interpret the the following line: "Your will be done on earth as in heaven," as a petition. It's a petitionary prayer. Uh, what are we asking for specifically when we say those words? Yeah, you know, uh, one of my favorite definitions of petitionary prayer, I quote this in the book, it's from the, the theologian David Wells, and he talks about petitionary prayer as rebellion against the world in its fallenness. So, in other words, we look out and we see all the ways that, that um, God's will is being contradicted, um, whether through human evil or through natural disaster, you know, this is this is not God's good and gracious will for how the world should go. And so when we pray for his will to be done, we, we say, Lord, we want we want more evidence, we want more instances of your good will being carried out than are currently happening right now in the world. When you amplify on this phrase, you go to uh, I mean one of the supreme moments where this prayer that Jesus has instructed of all us to pray. He prays these lines. You quote from Matthew, my father, in, in, in the, uh, on the eve of his crucifixion, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And you note that the wording in Greek of the Lord's Prayer and the wording of Jesus's anguish, cry in the garden, they are identical. Yeah, you know, Jesus teaches us how to pray this prayer by his own life. I think that's one of the running themes of my book, is that if you want to know what this looks like in real life to pray this prayer, just watch how Jesus lives his life. Watch how he prays, um, because we're, we're really being invited into his, his, his own prayer. Give us today our daily bread. There you say that th this, this isn't quite a petition. It's really uh, an expression of humility. How so? Well, I think it's. I think it underscores our dependence. Um, I think. I think by form, of course, it is a petition. Um, but the the sort of theology that it's uh, that it's inculcating in us, if you like, is that we are uh, forever dependent on God for sustenance, and above all, you know, I argue the spiritual sustenance of, of the Eucharist. Um, uh, God gives us not only, um, you know, the essentials of life that we need, life and breath and health, but uh, ultimately uh, God feeds us with Jesus Christ himself as our, as our food. Um, and, you know, it's no accident, I think, that in the liturgy we, we pray this prayer right before uh, going up to receive communion. 
Um, so that that kind of liturgical context of it is important too, I think. You you write at the end of that chapter ex- exactly that these words come just before communion, and when you say when we come back to the Lord's prayer. After hearing Jesus' discourse on the bread of life and his flesh given to the world for eating, it becomes hard not to see Jesus himself as the daily bread. He encourages us to pray for. In her meditations on the Lord's Prayer, Simone Weil says simply, Christ is our bread. Now, when, when in the Sermon on the Mount, could the people hearing the Sermon on the Mount before the Last Supper envision the fullness of that line, give us today our daily bread, and, and relating it back to Jesus himself? I, I, that's, I know it's a big, big speculative question yeah, there. Yeah, but, but, but I, do think, I do think it's interesting that even, even those standing there listening could have recalled the way God fed his people Israel with manna from heaven. So there, there could already be a sense of a supernatural quality to this, to this petition. Right, right. Now, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, Wesley, this I understand. What if during the week we, we didn't sin at all? I mean, I, I haven't sinned at all the whole month. Do I really need to say the Lord? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. You know, I, I, I uh, um, yeah, you know, I, I talk about the fact that um, the fact that Jesus includes this petition in the prayer suggests that he knows we're going to need to pray it over and over again. Um, uh, you know, and there's there's the first epistle of John later in the New Testament, which talks about if anyone thinks he has no sin, uh, you know, think again, basically. Um, so so I think I think Jesus is, is encouraging us to think of ourselves as as we're going to be ongoingly in need of forgiveness. This isn't a once for all thing that happens at the at the moment of your Christian conversion or your baptism, you know, we need to, we need to come back again and again. You, you know, you're right. What is written into the, the Lord's Prayer is the expectation. Well, of course you're going to have to say this over and over again. And it's here. It's ready for, it, it's ready to be said. This is, this is, this is a positive understanding of, of, of your sin. This is this is a way through your sin, which is which is going to come back uh, when you say the Lord's prayer. I mean, is this something that should be? Should we say the Lord's prayer every day, every morning, every evening? You know, as why not? Early as, <laughs> yeah, why not? As early as the Didache, uh, you know, this this uh, the second century, early second century document, uh, uh, or late first century. Um, the expectation is Christians are going to be praying this three times a day. Um, so, you know, why not? <laughs> right, right. Uh, now, when we ask for the forgiveness, uh, you raise an issue of, well, the, the, the turn, as we forgive those who sin against us, that uh, raises the question of, is God's forgiveness of us dependent on our forgiveness of others. You know, we might want to say that our, our experience and our receiving of God's forgiveness in, in terms of our own lived reality is, in fact, uh, contingent on whether we're going to forgive others. Um, it's not that God is, is sitting around waiting to see if we will forgive people enough times before 
bestowing his forgiveness on us. You know, I don't think God operates in that kind of tit for tat uh, mechanical way. But if we insist on holding on to bitterness, we are in effect closing ourselves off from, you know, enjoying and experiencing and, and kind of reveling in God's forgiveness of us. So the, 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 the two really do seem to be tied up together, as Jesus points out later in another parable. Um, you know, if a, if a great king forgives, um, you know, uh, someone who's indebted to him this massive sum, it would be crazy. It would be wrong for that for that person to then turn around and demand that their that their slave who owes them just a tiny little bit, you know, would would uh, would pay up. Uh, Jesus says it doesn't work that way. If you understand God's forgiveness, you're going to want to forgive others. Right, right. You know, if if you don't have the capacity to forgive others, you're you're not going to possess the humility, right, to go before God. Right. I mean, I I, I can see how. Yeah, yeah. One, they they are. It's not a causal thing, but it's hard to imagine one without the other. That's right. That's right. One being the fruit of the other, you know, I, I think in, in Ephesians, you know, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now I have a question. Save us from the time of, of trial. Well, now look, why doesn't just God stop the trials? Well, why do we have to go through times of trial? Right, right. That's right. Yeah. And you know, I, I spend a bit of time in the book talking about how that we have these, these examples all through the, the Bible of God sort of bringing refining fire into people's lives to, 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 to mature us, you know, to, to, to discipline us, to, to grow us. And, you know, I think whatever else Jesus means there, he, he's not saying that God is going to spare us those times. Um, but what I think he is encouraging us to pray for is that God will provide for us the ultimate shelter. You know, we, we can have hope that um, we can we can pass through God's judgment and, and, and be shown mercy. Um, and, you know, I think that ties into the next petition, which is deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. You know, we're talking about the ultimate victory of, of our salvation that, that Jesus is teaching us to to pray for and to long for, I think. You, you put it, uh, quote, all trials are permitted only for our own good. Right. Which I think is what St. Paul says in, in Romans 8, you know, which is that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And, and then the next verse spells out that that good that they're working toward is our being increasingly like Jesus, like Christ, in our conduct and in our speech, you know. And deliver us from evil. Uh, you call this really an, first of all, an unambiguous acknowledgement of the reality of Satan. There's a real, there is a real Satan. It is, uh, 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 Satan is, Satan is not sort of just this, this airy badness uh, out there. There's, there's something concrete that we can say is evil. Yeah, there's there's evil is personal uh, in that sense. It's not just a vague force. That there's a there's an agency to it. I think that's the testimony of Scripture and the Christian tradition throughout the ages is that we actually have an enemy, a personal enemy, um, and Jesus is teaching us to pray for and to expect that God will rescue us from that enemy. Um, you know, one of the teachings of the New Testament is that the devil has been defeated through the through the work of Christ and. Um, it, it may feel like he's still on a long leash, but he is actually leashed. 
Um, and there's good news in that. This is so contrary to everything modern. I mean, the, the idea that evil is real, that it is that it is concrete, that it is personal. I remember I was I was sitting at a at, at a big lunchroom table in a, some organic grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. I was teaching there for a year, a few years ago, and there was a boy there. He was about five, six years old, and he he had a couple of these. Uh, superhero kinds of uh, uh, hand, you know, dolls, whatever, these plastic, whatever. And, you know, he's, he's banging them together and he says, these, you will die, evil man, you will die. Something like this. And his mother, who, who uh, leaned over and says, now, you know, Billy or whatever. Now listen, and she started to, to tell him that that, that that character isn't evil that no one is fundamentally evil, nothing is fundamentally evil. We only see things that way because of certain ways in which we're raised or whatever. <laughs> I want to say, look, the boy wants good guys and bad guys. You got <laughs> He's responding to something real here. And and uh, but this was no, she 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 wanted to she wanted to stop that uh, that sense of evil in in the world and uh, you know I, I i saw a natural disposition in in that in a natural recognition in that boy and and actually the the suppression of it uh by his mother at, at that moment so uh, um, you know she we need to talk about being delivered from evil uh with her so well you know you mentioned this being sort of alien to modern sensibilities and i i think in, in a certain sense you're of course right but I also think the way many modern people are waking up to the fact that evil seems to have a kind of life of its own at times. It can, it can catch people in its grip. You know, we think of things like addiction or, or, or the way that we're, you know, aware of structural or systemic uh, evils and injustices. So I do think there are some hooks in the sort of contemporary mindset and discourse mm-hmm. that we could use to, to sort of create a, a bridge for, for conversation there about, about personal evil. Right. In the final lines, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory yours now and forever, amen. One, one warning you make is that we shouldn't get too caught up in the worldly facts about Jesus. Well, where exactly was he born? Where was he at age 15? And so those, those can be a little bit uh, misleading. Well, why is that? Yeah, so the, the, thanks for the question. The, the context of that is that, um, you know, I'm kind of talking about the view of Philip Melanchthon, and he says we really have to uh, not simply know the bare facts about Jesus' life, but we have to know that that life was lived for us. Um, you know, for our our good, for our salvation. So, uh, so to know Christ is not simply to know the data about His life, but it's it's to know Him in the sense of trust Him for His for His benefits. You know, His His salvation to us. Um, so I sort of start off the chapter talking about that point. The final praise in the Lord's Prayer you write means to direct us toward. There is coming a time when we will have no more need to ask God for bread, for absolution, or for rescue. All of our tears will have been wiped away, death will have been finally defeated, and the earth and its people will be at peace and thriving. This is the, the exhortation of the final, the final lines. For the kingdom of are yours forever. Amen. That this is, this is an acknowledgement, uh, an assertion of, of God's reign. 
this will this will be this will happen yes that's right and in that way you know i i might push back a little bit on what i was just saying about melanchthon a few a few moments ago um ultimately our salvation is about enjoying and and beholding the beauty and the glory of god um you know all, all these all these things that we praise god for you know daily bread forgiveness of sins um, all these all these things we ask for, we won't have any need to ask for those anymore, uh, because all all that we'll be left to do will be to enjoy God uh, forever. Um, it's what the tradition calls the beatific vision, you know, uh, the 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 blessed vision of God. Um, that's that's what we're ultimately destined for, and I think that's what the doxology at the end of the prayer is is directing our attention toward. That we're now lost in praise. Uh, yours, O oh Lord, is the is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and we just sort of feast on that reality and and enjoy it and appreciate it uh, for all eternity. Petitions will not be necessary in God's future. You write, we will cease asking God to supply our needs, since we will be entirely satisfied. All that will remain is to praise God, to enjoy His benevolent reign, to rejoice in what His power has achieved, and to see His glory. Let it be so, which is what. Amen amounts to is the only appropriate response to these promises. That's the end of the that's the end of that section. Thank you, Wesley Hill. The book is The Lord's Prayer: A Guide to Praying for Our Father. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.